0: We have been working through the book of Isaiah together, just chapter by chapter, moving through it. And uh, we're, we're doing something a little different. We're pausing and looking at one particular verse from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. So um, if you have a Bible, you can open to Isaiah 5. I'm going to read verses 18 to 23, just so we have a little bit of flow, a sense of the flow of thought. But we'll be thinking particularly of verse 20. And uh, I would invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 5, 18 to 23. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This is God's word. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we want to be people of your word. So we pray that your word would have its fruit amongst us today. We've been moving through Isaiah. and Now we pause to consider one particular verse in greater depth. And we need the help of your spirit so that we'd understand it rightly. Also so that the work you intend to do through this book can be done in our hearts. So we ask for the help of your spirit. Shape us by your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I thought it would be good right at the start to explain why we're pausing to just look at one verse when we've been looking at sometimes 40 or 50 verses at a time. Why just Isaiah 520? Well, when I prepare to preach through a book of the Bible, I take a week or two weeks to Study it to set aside my time and look only at that book and study it, study it, study it, try and understand what's going on in that book. And when I was doing that for Isaiah, it was a couple of weeks of intense study. And when I came across Isaiah 520, it really gripped me. It struck me. And I think that's because there were some thoughts that had been circulating in my brain. There were some pressures that my heart had been feeling. I didn't quite know how to process or understand. I had been reading. How the the emphasis that I grew up with in the 1990s on abstinence. Was actually detrimental and unhealthy. There were a list of reasons given why this 90s purity culture was actually toxic and unhealthy. And I'd been reading about modesty and how those who tell, tell a woman to dress modestly are actually implicitly condoning male lust and blaming women for males, men's problems. Things like this were, were rattling in my brain and and as I was processing it, there were ways I was feeling pressures to. Modify how, how I would talk about something. To, to just veer a little bit from clear teachings of the Bible. Because of this emphasis on how maybe they weren't truly moral or good. It was a pressure I was feeling. Maybe it's a pressure sometimes you feel. Maybe it's a pressure you feel and you feel like. Is it okay for me to talk about it or mention that I feel that. Pull or that. That tug. So you can imagine how Isaiah 520 brought some things together for me. I don't want to quite say it was an epiphany, but but the way it crystallized some of my thinking was really helpful. Now, it's, it's not every day that. Or it's often that there's a truth in God's word or a verse in God's word that is really helpful to me personally. And it's not like every time that happens, I'm like, therefore, I'm going to go preach on that to the whole church. But in this particular case, I thought with the culture that we're living in and with the pressures we face as a church, this is a verse that's worth slowing down and taking time to consider. So we're going to look at Isaiah 520 because as we're studying Isaiah we see that one of the hallmarks of God's people when they remain healthy is that they hold unswervingly to the truth of God's word they hold to the scriptures and do not veer from the right to the right or to the left and one of the ways the devil will use to unhitch us from God's word is morality. One of the ways that the devil will use to unhitch us from God's word is morality. Let me explain what I mean. It's one thing for somebody to say, you know what, God's word says this. I know that's good, but I'm rejecting that. That's not the course I want for my life. And that kind of thinking might pose some threat to us. But it's an entire thing, it's an entirely different thing together, altogether, for someone to say, what God says is good in his word is actually immoral. It's wrong. Or what Bi- the Bible says, what God says in his word is, is wrong, is actually right. It is moral. It's that kind of thinking that I think we can be particularly susceptible to. Those who take what's good and call it evil. Those who take what's evil and call it good. And there are some who will just blatantly do that. There are others who will actually claim to be affirming the scriptures while coming along and saying that the very teachings of scripture are evil or good. Alternatively. And so what I want us to do this morning is just to to be warned from scripture about this threat so that we will be people who hold to God's word. Now, as we begin, I just want to make four observations about this verse that that form a kind of exegetical foundation for the comments I'll make in this sermon. And the first observation of Isaiah 5.20 is that it's written about God's people. Those of you who have been following with us in our series in Isaiah know that Isaiah not, is not hesitant to address the pagan nations. In fact, starting next week, we're going to look at an extended section of Isaiah where the pagan nations are addressed. But in this particular case, in Isaiah 5. The Lord is addressing his people when he pronounces these woes. It's not them out there who started to call good evil and evil good. It's actually his own people. That's observation number one. This is about God's people. Second observation. It's because of the influence of the pagan nations how, how does God's people come to a place where the very things God says are good, they call evil or vice versa? Joshua 23 gives us a hint of this because Joshua is saying, when you go into the land, hold fast to the law of Moses, do not turn to the left or to the right. And then he says, you're going to be around these pagan nations don't intermix with them. Don't get caught up with them. Don't intermarry with them. Because if you do, they'll cause you to veer away from the word of God. So hold fast to the word of God and don't get caught up in these pagan nations. And that's exactly what you see happening. The opposite of it is what you see happening in the book of Isaiah. God's people have allowed the godless thinkers around them who reject Yahweh and his laws to start to make inroads into their own way of thinking. And that's what's led them to call good evil and evil good. Third observation. It's because they've drifted away from God's word. So this is about God's people because of the influence of the pagan nations, but it's also because they've drifted away from God's word. And these two observations, the second and third observation here actually go together. why are they susceptible to the pagan nations just as joshua had said it's because they have drifted to the left and right they haven't held firm to what the lord teaches i think of chapter 9 which we looked at a few weeks ago where it says at the end of verse 15 and the prophet who teaches lies is the tale for those who guide this people have been leading them astray." And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The preachers, the prophets, the teachers of their day have not been holding forth the word of God. And they've lost that compass, that light to their paths that they so need. So this is about God's people. Because of the influence of the pagan nations, because they've turned from the word of God. And the fourth observation it's given as a warning to God's people. Given as a warning to God's people. Imagine, if you will, that one of my friends was looking at buying a car. And I went up to my friend and I said something like I used to own a Mitsubishi. I thought it'd be a great car. Checked all the boxes but it was long after I bought it that it started breaking down, having all sorts of issues. And on top of that, the parts for the Mitsubishi are hard to get and expensive. So the repairs were more costly than another vehicle. Why would I be telling my friend that? It's not just useful information about what happened to me in the past. I'm telling them what happened as a warning. We know from Isaiah that the people that this statement was true of, who were calling good evil and evil good, were already their fate was already sealed. God had decided he was bringing the judgment of the Assyrians upon them. They were going into exile. There was punishment coming, but there was a remnant. There was a group of people amongst Amongst God's people, amongst Israel, who God wanted to turn to him and hold fast to him. And so this word, this woe, which is on a, upon a certain segment, is written as a warning. Hear what's true of those people so that we will not make the same mistake. So in light of those observations, let me tell you what I'm going to do with the rest of this sermon. This sermon is not a chance for us to flare our nostrils and look down our noses at the prevailing culture around us. It's the, the goal of this sermon is not to have us all, you know, patting ourselves on the back. Look how righteous we are when all those other people are so bad and awful. The goal of our time is to give us a warning. That one way the devil will try and unhitch us from God's word is by taking the very truths of God's word and saying those things God that says are good are actually evil. And those things God says are evil are actually good. Using morality to unhitch us from God's word. We need to be warned by scripture that this is something that can happen so that we will not be susceptible to it. Does that make sense? Okay, with the remainder of the sermon then, I want to just walk through three steps to help us think through this topic and and understand how this can happen. And the first step is to help us see why, why this kind of thinking is compelling for us. Now, every society has a moral code. Every society has a system of ethics. This is right and this is wrong. And usually that moral code is based on the values of that society. So the the values different groups or cultures hold and the ethics they hold to, the morality they hold to differ. It's It's not all the same. So you take a particular cultural group that really values protecting your own and strength. And they might say that it is good. Certain kinds of violence are good when you're standing up for your own. So that tribe or that culture might value and say good something that's violent or you take another group. Yeah, you can get those umbrellas out. It'll pass. It'll pass. You take another group that really values kind of protecting the family and protecting or, or advancing the social standing of your family name in the broader culture. Let's say that's something you really value. How is our family perceived? If you hold that value, you might end up covering up or lying about abuse that's taking place in your own home, calling something evil good. So what I'm trying to show with those illustrations is that morality is, is a shifting thing based on what values we have. When we grow up within a certain culture, those values that that culture has actually start to shape us. You, you, you can't completely detach yourself from the values your culture shares. So if we grow up in a certain culture or society, what it values and thinks is right and good. We we might not have the circumspection to understand all that. It's just kind of native to us. We, We get it with the milk we grow up with, so to speak. And so when the society around us comes and says, this is good, this is bad, this is bitter, this is sweet, this is light, this is darkness. It is summer, last summer all over again. If you need to take a moment to uh, scatter under a tent or a tree or pop up your umbrella, go for that. I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, I might pass this to you for a minute, though. So it doesn't get too wet. This is what family memories are made of, right? At least it's not cold out. Last year when it rained on us, it was really cold too. So it was like awful. All right. We'll bring it back together here. As Christians, as Christians, there are certain things that God's word does to our hearts. First. When we embrace Christ, he changes our hearts so that our hearts actually desire what is good and right. Doesn't mean we perfectly follow that our flesh still gets in the way, but we actually desire what is good and right. So. Because of that, when society comes along and saying this is what's good and right, there's a certain draw to that. I want to do what's good and right. Further, the gospel makes us people who are quick to listen and quick to see our own faults. So we don't want to go around with a self-righteousness. I I know everything. I'm wise. I'm smart. No, I'm small. I'm unwise. I get things wrong. And so it inclines us to want to see our fault. We want to take the log that's in our own eye out of it instead of focusing on the speck in our brother's eye. So when somebody comes along and says, actually what you're thinking that you you claim to be moral is actually immoral. What you claim to be sweet is actually bitter. There's an inclination in us as Christians to believe it. So on the one hand, we've grown up in that culture, the values we share, we probably implicitly hold to. And so we're inclined towards that. And on the second On a second level, our own hearts as Christians are inclined to want to listen and be drawn to that. And so this is why it can be gripping for us. This is why it can pull us. So that's step one I want us to see is just why these kind of moral arguments can be compelling to us. My second step out of three, my second step is just to give two examples for us. I need my Bible back. I put it under for the rain. here it is. Here it is. I want us to just look at two examples of how this trap can work. It's not to give us an exhaustive account of all the different ways this can happen in our world, but to just get a sense for how this works. Because as we can see the trap as it's set, In a a few specific examples, I think that that little taste of it can help inculcate us against the wider threat. When I was growing up, um, there was a a, a book that was popular amongst my friends called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, written by uh, a young Christian bachelor named Joshua Harris. I wasn't a big fan of the book, and uh, I also didn't like what a fad it was amongst my friends. But at the same time, I respected the author, Joshua Harris, for being willing to kind of go against the stream of the prevailing culture. That author, Joshua Harris, went on to be the pastor of a fairly large church, a megachurch in the United States. It was really the epicenter of a, of a big, almost denominational movement on churches, quite the influence. A few years back, sadly, Joshua Harris— left that church. And then not long after that, he left his wife. And not long after that, he left Christianity altogether. And I want you to read his, I'm going to read to you. I want you to hear his state, the statement that he made about this Hear what he said, I have lived in repentance for the past several years repenting of my self-righteousness my fear-based approach to life the teaching of my books my views of women in the church and my approach to parenting to name a few but I specifically want to add to this list now to the LBGTQ community I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books And as a pastor regarding sexuality, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. You hear that statement and you can see how compelling it is to us naturally. I mean, here's a guy who's saying, I've given my last few years to repenting about everything I can possibly repent of. I mean, there's anything that's biblical, that's repentance. Good. Be a repenter. And one of the things he repents of is his own self-righteousness. I I mean, that's something... We don't want to be self-righteous people. And further, he talks about how his own actions have hurt others and he's going out of his way to take responsibility for his own actions and to reach out and make those things right. And then he talks about a culture of bigotry and exclusion. I mean, who wouldn't want to be against those things? And so we hear these words and they can draw our hearts in. They can seem compelling. But here's the problem. He says that he's repenting of self-righteousness. And of course, there is plenty of self-righteousness that passes itself off as Christianity. There's a lot of versions of Christianity that just say, I'm going to hit a checklist and show everybody how good I am. There's a lot of fear of man that passes itself off as Christianity. So I I don't know. That might be something he needed to repent of. But to move from a place that says, God determines what's right and wrong, and I submit to that, to a place that says, I determine what's right and wrong, even if it's different than what God says, is the epitome of self-righteousness. He's moved from saying, I don't want to be so arrogant as to tell people they're wrong, to say, I'm so arrogant as to tell God he's wrong. This is a serious move. And he claims to move away from self-righteousness, but, but the virtue signaling that he, he hits in a statement like that, it's all the things that our, our current culture says, this is what you need to do to be righteous. If you want to be approved of men, if you want our approval, do this, do this. I've moved away from the fear of man, and now I'm saying what all the culture wants me to say. I've moved away from self-righteousness, but now I'm saying the very things that tell you, now I'm good, now I'm righteous. When you dig a little deeper, you realize the flaws in a statement like that. But it can be compelling. Another example to give would be the issue of abortion. I know abortion is in the news after the ruling in the United States the other yesterday. Thursday, I think. Did I get that wrong. Um, but I actually, I actually wanted to mention this as an example, even before I knew it'd be in the news. The, the argument you, you'd, think, you'd think that abortion would be one of those issues that everybody could agree on. We're not going to kill innocent life. Pre-born children, we protect. The Bible's clear that we don't take life. The Bible's clear that life begins at conception. And yet, the biblical stance against abortion is called evil by many. And the argument goes something like this. Men have used women's reproduction to keep them subjugated for a long time because as long as a woman is bearing children and having to care for children, she is completely dependent upon a man. And so if we want to free women from that subjugation, they need to have full control over their reproduction. And so reproductive rights are essential to basic human rights. If a woman woman is going to be able to be free and not subject subjugated to a man, she must have those reproductive rights. And of course, of course, when women start pushing back and saying, we are going to take control of our body, we're going to take control of these issues. Men are going to resist that because it threatens their power. It, It threatens the structure that keeps them in place and then they'll go on to say and the claims to moral high ground are merely manipulation they say that they are pro life but really all they are is pro birth they want that bi- that baby to be born but as soon as that baby's born they won't do anything to lift a finger to help care for that child or that mother or preserve them and that proves that really all they're trying to do is use morality to subjugate women. And therefore, we must stand up for this right. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. We could, we could go on and on. These are big, complex questions. But, but do you see that, that that sounds compelling? I don't want to be complicit in keeping women subjugated. I don't want to be in favor of, of moral hypocrisy where morality is used to oppress a certain people. course there are problems with this as well we do together want the thriving of women but we trust that god knows best how women can thrive god knows best what the relationship should be between male and female and how that can be its healthiest and when we start saying no we know best not god and we're going to chart our course and we're going to create a narrative that's best. I'm not sure that the course will go down will actually be for the best. So I I hope in giving these two examples, we can see how alluring this argument can be. There's all sorts of ways it can happen. Calling good evil and evil. Good. But I want to take one final step. One final step as we think about these things. And that is to kind of turn the tables on us. You know, at least within our church, it can be easy for some to kind of look at progressive, non-traditionalists, liberal. I don't mean that in the political party. I just mean kind of in the progressive sense and and say, yes, that's dangerous. That's bad. I'm going to look down my nose on that, at that. Not realizing that a more traditionalist, more conservative. Again, I don't mean that in a political party sense. Can likewise present the same danger of calling evil good and good evil. If there's a cliff on one side, veer from God's word on the one side and fall off the cliff. There's a cliff on the other side as well. And if if we're going to give a warning, we need to allow the full warning of Scripture to be heard. So for example, in the book of Isaiah, one of the issues that is railed against is how God's people had become so comfortable in their wealth and prosperity That they started accumulating possessions for themselves in a self-centered way, attaching field to field, getting lots of nice expensive things and kind of walking around, showing it off. And all, Isaiah says, at the expense of poor and needy people. And then they'd been overlooked. Overlooked. We have to be able to hear the correct of God's word. What if we start to say, okay, I gather all this wealth. I'm doing well, got myself financially stable. This is good. Not realizing that we become self-centered, have a hard heart that's not caring for the needs of the poor. And what we're calling good is actually something that's repugnant to God. The scriptures cut both way, both ways. You think of you think of the issue of justice today. It's a hot button issue. Maybe you hear terms like social justice, systemic oppression or systemic injustice, intersectionality, Black Lives Matters, woke Christianity. These kind of terms. You have one group of people who who rightly say we need to make sure that it's the scriptures that are defining what justice is and showing how justice is applied. But some of those people are slow to listen to the voice of the oppressed. People experienced awful things at the hands of injustice in our society. And they silence those voices and don't hear them and don't raise a finger to help them. The scriptures would correct that. Don't say, because, because I'm holding to the biblical view of justice, I'm good and do evil things like not hear the voice of the oppressed. And yet on the other side, there are people say it is so important scripturally to hear the voice of the marginalized, to hear the voice of the oppressed and to stand up for them. And yet they They don't allow the scriptures to define what justice is. They don't allow the scriptures to define the application of justice. And therefore, a whole swath of people can be declared to be guilty without having done a crime. Just on the basis of their gender or their race. So what I want you to see is. If we're going to be people who resist this calling evil good and calling good evil, we have to be on guard against both left and right, holding to the scriptures and being faithful there. Now, as we draw the sermon to a conclusion, it might be, um, it might be tempting to, to take away from the sermon like, okay, once I become a Christian, i am downloaded all the true things. And I can just go through life, never changing my viewpoint, never being challenged, never growing. That's not what I'm saying. Christians need to be constantly evaluating what we believe based on the word of God, constantly hearing other voices and and being challenged and thinking, am I holding it to to it rightly? But what I want to do in this sermon from Isaiah 520 is to say God's word tells us there is there is a way in which the devil works where we can be tempted to call evil good and call good evil to call bitter sweet and call sweeter sweet bitter. We need to be aware that that can happen and be on guard against it so that when it happens we're not pulled in so we become unhitched from the word of God. We need to be people who keep our nose in God's word. It's God's word that tells us about how Jesus, Came to rescue us, to deliver us from our sins so that we can be forgiven. It's God's word that tells us how Jesus came and restored our relationship to our creator, even though we're rebels against him. And those same scriptures teach us that God is coming, that part of the reason Jesus came is to form a people for himself who are distinct from this world. And so we want to be followers of that King, not following in the, what the world calls moral, but following our King and what he says is moral, holding fast to his words so that we can be that new humanity, that new people that he's called us to be. Let's, let's pursue our savior and be the people he's called us to be reflecting what he's like in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we're outside with the distractions of rain, a different kind of sermon. But your word is here before us. I pray that the truths that are held out within it would be clear to us as we leave from this place, that we'd be people who would hold fast your word. Don't swerve to the left or to the right, not caught up with the worldly thinking, even when it's claims to be moral, but stand with you as followers of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.